I'm Andy Crouch, inviting you to download and listen to the new Beer Edge podcast, a source for news, information, and insight regarding the brewing industry and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The show, co-hosted by John Hall and I, talks with key players on the front lines of the beer business to give you insights and advice on how to navigate these uncharted waters. The Beer Edge podcast is available on all major platforms, or you can visit us at beeredge.com slash podcasts. Thanks for your support. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer. It's the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. And man, it's been weird these last couple of months. And I think a lot of us have been rethinking our beer consumption, our beer traditions, and what it is that we want to comfort us during these times. And, you know, for some of us, it's been going back to beers that influenced our drinking. Uh, habits and careers uh, from an early age to going back to what our parents or our grandparents drank to sort of forge a connection with them on a deeper level. And given my job, um, I, I get to talk to a lot of people who enjoy good beer. And for the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been doing socially distanced driveway beers uh, here in the suburbs of New Jersey. And about a week and a half ago, a friend of mine brought by some fresh to him uh, that was muled back from the West Coast, Alaskan Amber. And I hadn't had that beer in maybe, I don't know, two, three, four years now at, at this point. And when you drink it, it's sort of background music. It's it's not necessarily a beer that you think about. It's just a beer that's there uh, when you're in certain cities and in certain states and having a good time because it's just it's a solid citizen of the world of beer. But I really started thinking about this beer uh, as I was tasting it standing in my driveway and the journey that it had made and, you know, the, the, the history um, that that beer has and how it has played into uh, the overall beer industry these days. And so I wanted to call up uh, Jeff and Marcy Larson. Uh, they founded the brewery in 1986. They've been around for the majority of the craft brew movement. Uh, they've seen uh, the good, the bad, and the otherwise, and they've built uh, one of the largest breweries in the country uh, in one of the most unlikely places in the country. So when I do this show, uh, the way that it typically works, to give you a little bit of a peek behind the scenes, uh, you usually hear me say, here's our conversation. Uh, what happens before that is I'm talking with folks and we're, we're going through last minute, uh, okay, here's what we're going to hit, uh, you know, here's what you should worry about. I usually don't give people a heads up as to what they're uh, going to worry about, but it's usually here's what you don't have to worry about, um, you know, because we have about 45 minutes when we're recording live to tape. Um, and I usually start off by saying, just so I can go back later on in the tape, I'll say, uh, who are you and what do you do? And this sort of helps um, uh, me remember if I have to listen to a tape later on, um, who they are and, and, and what they do, and also hear how they pronounce their name. So hopefully when I'm going to say it later on, I, I, I don't butcher it. And it's usually just a little bit of patter as I'm dialing in the levels and, and, and getting everything working. So we had Jeff and Marcy uh, both on landlines from their house. Marcy is on a wireless phone that I guess hasn't been used in quite some some years. And so she's on for the first couple of minutes and then her battery dies and, and, and she falls off. But I'm keeping in 
this sort of B matter, this B roll of 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 conversation because the two of them who have been uh, working and married to each other, uh, working with and married to each other for for so long, um, they have this fun back and forth that I think only comes with time and experience, and because we could all use a little bit of levity in this day and age. Um, I'm keeping it in. So you're going to hear a little bit of the behind the scenes before uh, Marcy drops off and then Jeff and I continue on. Anyway, unedited now, here's our conversation. So for the purposes of this tape, can you both tell me who you are and what you do? Well, I'm Jeff Larson, and um, when we started, started Alaskan Brewing back in 1986, um, I was pretty much focused on production. And I'm Marcy Larson, and back when we started 1986, Jeff and I were just newly married, and uh, this was all his idea. I want to make that clear. <laughs> and uh, we, <laughs> he had the great idea of starting a, a brewery up here in Alaska, and I got to tag along and do all the paperwork and the, <laughs> the administrative background behind behind the brewer, along with helping clean tanks, etc. And this is, uh, you know, a great way to start with conflict, because um, <laughs> we argue about whose idea it was. <laughs> and uh, actually, I'd say Marcy got to Alaska before I did, and so when I moved up, we uh, we had our you know, different backgrounds, mine's engineering, chemical engineering, and hers was photojournalism slash accounting um and uh so we uh explored alaska and enjoyed the place and then discovered the people but then we also wanted to explore um maybe a more intimate lifestyle in regards to working together so we both tended to um take work as a, a very fundamental part of our life, so we immersed ourselves in whatever we did, and um, starting the brewery ended up being a cooperative affair. Well, so so here's the thing: I'm not here to play marriage counselor by any means, but if you're both sort of blaming each other, your website tells a third story, uh, where it says under a daring solution under the about me page on the Alaskan Brewing Company. Uh, Marcy and Jeff were drawn to the beauty and adventure of Alaska, but finding a livelihood that would allow them to stay was a challenge. Quote, why not start a brewery? A friend suggested. So now there's a mysterious <laughs> third person who has entered into this conversation that neither of you have blamed yet. And this is for, oh, okay. for the whole see, world to see. That was conflict avoidance. <laughs> I mean, because... <laughs> I mean, true. I mean, it, I promise you. I, I said early on this wasn't going to be a gotcha journalism show, but uh, but it kind of, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I think that's one of the strengths that we've always had is that we both have, you know, we're individuals. Yeah. The land, Alaska is the land of the indi individual and other endangered species, and uh, <laughs> what we we have always had as a, an advantage is is a complementary. Um, uh, relationship in regards to having different perspectives, but then through the amalgam of working through it, we we come to some you know, reasonable uh, solution. But no, it's always been a kind of a funny thing that she blames me and I blame her. And and at the end of the day, we are extraordinarily fortunate and happy and lucky to have had the opportunity to do what we did when we did it, and it's been great. 
It is great. Has been. Yes, we really enjoyed it, and working together has worked out for us, and partly because we had our own uh, areas that we could focus on and bring bring some uh, value together. But, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, but also I think the mutual love of the products that we make um, and where we make it. And also I think the influence of, of our locale um, made a difference in the end products. The uh, quality of life and the quality of product, I think, go hand in hand. So let's talk about locale for a second because... Again, going back to this website, um, you guys are, are saying 67th uh, of, of the craft breweries, microbrew, independent, whatever moniker we're going to put on on uh, small breweries these days. Juno strikes me as a great place to have a brewery if you just want to serve beer in and around Juno, which there's the, the city and maybe not a, a, a whole lot less or a whole lot more. Um but you guys are in multiple states now, um, and you know one of the larger breweries in the country, and 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 certainly uh, known throughout the world for for the beers that you make. When you first started the brewery, and when you were planning on on, on starting the brewery, was huge expansion, multi-state expansion, regional expansion, w- w- was that ever part of, like even the vaguest of hopes? No. <laughs> Next question. Just yeah. The state, the state, the state was big enough. That, yeah. That was, that was the intent right there. And you got to remember when we started, even you know, in our state, home brewing was illegal. Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody abided by that, but sure. it was. And uh, and absolutely, you could not make beer and sell beer on premise yourself. So, so there were a lot of limitations that kind of pushed us into being a production brewery right out of the gate. Yeah, and while we have a tasting room, it was more as a platform for people to maybe intimately see us as 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 a as a manufacturer. I think it was kind of funny. Manufacturing has such a dry kind of character, but but up here in Alaska, uh, they there was a tendency to think about really if it was an extractive resource state. I mean, whether it be oil or timber or fishing, it wasn't. It wasn't that creative manufacturing thing. So for us, we wanted to show people, you know, you can be small, you can be, you know, pretty creative, you can do something different. And back then, essentially, the whole craft boutique brewery scene, as they used to call it, um, was, you know, pretty kind of outside of the norm, normal thinking. But I, I would say um, Alaska created its own sets of challenges that actually created, I think, opportunities for us to do things and see things differently. Um, But one of the things that was kind of fun was um, looking at that platform of maybe having people see us. Marcy did a lot of research and and found a lot of breweries back at the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. pre-prohibition, that existed in Alaska because... Quite frankly, even though the miners and loggers and the like were up here seasonally, maybe working hard, they still wanted that that beverage that they expected from their local uh, producer. So we we had um, quite a few inspirational moments looking at some of the historical 
advertisements and, and the like. And uh, so our first beer, the Alaskan Amber, was based upon a recipe from the, that gold rush era. And uh, we got interviews uh, from um, the newspapers of the brewers at the time and, and some of the challenges keeping ale yeast warm. And then, uh, lo and behold, Marcy discovered a uh, old collector that was kind of collecting Alaska memorabilia. And uh, Marcy, tell the story about, you know, Nick Nichols. Yeah. So, is she Ma- dropped off is the Mar- battery. Oh, she left? Yep, her battery died on, on, uh. on, the, on, the, on the handset. Well, what she had found was a collector who had all the old shipping receipts and uh, invoices for raw materials for this brewery on Douglas Island, which is part of now part of Juneau. Mm-hmm. And so our, our Alaskan Amber is based upon a, essentially a, a recipe from 1907, the Douglas City Brewing Company, pieced together based upon receipts of, of the crystal malt that they'd ordered and uh, the pale malt, the ratios, and then the bohemian hop, which now is called Foss. Okay. So we put it together with the cold fermentation of an ale uh, because basically there were icebergs in downtown Juneau at that time. The so, Glacier was still shedding icebergs getting to downtown Juneau. Um, so it, just a real, it, it was fun to be able to sit there and try to put a little bit of Alaska in the glass in as much as we could. So, you know, we didn't have that yeast from that era, but we knew it was an ale yeast. So that was kind of the beginning of maybe looking at where we are should influence, you know, what we make. And, uh, and that, but that's sort of the interesting thing that I was thinking about when, you know, so you coming around in 86, which is, uh, six years after Sierra Nevada was founded, uh, uh, about 10 years, uh, maybe 11 years after New Albion, uh, the original microbrewery was, 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 was founded. But everybody who came before you, more or less, was in an area where um, there is at least access to hops or access to raw ingredients or at least sort of a, a, a current culture that would sort of I, I have a customer base, uh, but that also it was relatively easy to get ingredients and where you are in your state i mean it's it's not necessarily like as easy as calling somebody up and saying you know hey can i get a delivery you know tomorrow um you really have to sort of plan some of these things out in the early days and i even imagine still still today um so when you were putting amber together and you're looking at some of these the these raw ingredients and then thinking about the other beers that you wanted to make were there a lot of similarities in ingredients so that you could order in bulk and then make a multitude of style, but based on, you know, three or four base malts and one or two hops at the time? Um, well, obviously, it, it, even in, you know, the ancient times of the 1980s <laughs> and 90s. Uh, We're not all that uh, old. Let, let's not call it ancient know, know, just yet, Jeff. <laughs> make... But I mean, obviously, uh, you know, access was, 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 uh, something that you know you could logistically accomplish now for us in alaska yes there were some hurdles that were maybe not necessarily typical of a, of a brewery like a new albion or or, or or being in chico or wherever the but but you, you could do it and we did it so that was just kind of the nature you know sometimes ignorance is bliss 
hey, you know, this is what we got to do. The interesting thing at that time, though, this is when the Iron Curtain was up. So mm-hmm. getting getting the sauce hops from Czechoslovakia, because that's what the that's what the brewer did back in 1907 when Czechoslovakia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is pre World War One. Right. I mean, it, 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 we had to plan, and so we were getting hops from behind the Iron Curtain over, and it was it was different, interesting. But then you fast forward 15, 20 years later, you know, we'd already we'd been doing contracts for hops for decades mm-hmm. when all of a sudden there was a hop shortage, and well, we we already have contracts. We, that's the way we do it because of those limitations. So what was the challenge? You know, basically in the latter part of the 80s and early part of the 90s was basically we were head of the head of the you know um, the the way of doing business that ended up having to be you know the natural way of doing business. You buy contracts over 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 decades. I would have to say even like right now, I mean, we have been collecting our CO2 off of fermentation mm-hmm. since uh, <laughs> since uh, basically 1989. 90. And so what we're, we're doing, we're collecting our CO2, and now there's a little bit of a CO2 shortage. Well, right. We've been using our own CO2 for decades. And quite frankly, the CO2 that we're using is not a greenhouse gas. It's, it's, from, it's from grain. Yes, it's CO2. CO2 is CO2. But much of the CO2 in this country is made um, by burning fossil fuels and then purifying it. So it ends up, you know, there's challenges that we've had, but you know, there are other other places that have challenges. I have a friend who was brewing in the middle of of summer in 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 Pensacola, Florida, and <laughs> talk about being hot and humid. Yeah, tough to make poor lagers. Boy, poor yeah. guy, poor guy, and you know, 120 degrees in his brew house. We don't have that problem. <laughs> we do not have that problem. Um, our groundwater is, you know, 35 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, wow. year-round. Yeah. I mean, so as far as being able to, you know, cool things down in the brew house, we heat recovery, obviously, all the, 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 the heat from our kettle boils. But mm-hmm. uh, but still, we have, we have, you know, challenges, yes. But every place has challenges, and we also have, have advantages. When you think about amber and the evolution of it, so... Based on you know piecing together old uh, bill of sales and uh, and 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 creating something, the beer has obviously evolved over time. Uh, you've discovered flavors that you like, and uh, you've become you know a, a, a stronger brewery, and uh, you've had better equipment uh, as, as you've grown. What do you think? Is there a difference taste wise? Do you think between some of those first batches of '86 and where we are halfway through 2020, and I don't how how is the beer if if there is how has the beer evolved and and in what ways? Um, I would say I mean I remember the first first dozen half dozen batches we would we we would be tasting the beer you know first bottling second bottling third bottling and and. and our objective has always been to try to be consistent mm-hmm. with our Alaskan amber, and so I would say, as far as evolution of flavor, we we always try to hit the mark. 
And I would say over the course of 30 years, we've gotten more and more consistent in, in that capability. And I would say uh, the health of our yeast, um, you know, the frequency with which we brew, all those things add uh, a huge amount of, of integrity to being able to hit the mark. And then you're talking about the, you know, the uh, attributes of, of, you know, the beer from the sickle is dear, different than the beer uh, in the bottle two months after packaging. Right. Well, how do you how do you reduce that oxidation exposure? And then canning. How do you again? How do you how do you make that work better? So I would say the wonderful thing that, that that's occurred in in the thirty plus years is the equipment we needed to use back in 1986. The availability of high quality equipment was challenging uh, for us. And today, you know, small breweries in the U.S. are 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 really driving uh, an improvement on those types of quality of equipment, quality of, uh, of uh, raw materials, and support, whether it be, you know, insurance for a small manufacturing operation to, to um, uh, expertise that you can tap into, um, you know, from microbiological expertise to... to um, um, production planning expertise. Uh, it's it's been it's been an amazing wild ride. I tell you, what a roller coaster! But it's <laughs> been just exciting. I mean, there, there's so many dimensions to it. The flavor dimension. Oh my goodness, the flavor dimensions of 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 the last 35 years. Oh my goodness. Well, and that's and that's sort of what I'm curious about, though, of going back to Amber of '86 and Amber of mid 2020 because when you're talking about hitting the mark consumer palettes have changed i mean any sort of hop content in the early 1980s you know uh by and large would have been heresy by the majority of beer drinkers and now we have people who you know give me 100 plus ibus and it's still not enough um uh with, with some other customers so when you're talking about trying to hit the mark on especially a flagship which has it, it it's become you know, what the brewery is known for and you know what 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 people seek out did you have to adjust not only in-house um but were you also soliciting consumer feedback or was it as you as you added new employees you know people would come in and say boy you know what i wish this you know this had was just a little bit more and i'm not saying you changed the recipe overnight right, or right, anything right. but like but certainly you know, things can start to feel, I don't know, like of a time and, and sort of left behind if brewers aren't necessarily thinking about you know, yeah, the larger thing or, or if, if a beer is yeah. too precious. Yeah, I, 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 I know where you're going with this, but I would say probably philosophically. Yeah. We are, are uh, maybe, you know kind of different in that way. We're we're not looking at wanting to make uh Alaskan Amber a, a moving target for the consumer. This is what, what we we strive for. It has a you know histor- historical root. But we produce a lot of different products. Oh sure. And some some of them have a malty more backbone kind of character. Others have a lot more of a hop backbone. Others have, you know, absolutely a different flavor profile 
not necessarily typical of beer. I mean, um, spice or maybe herbally influenced. Uh, you know, we we were quite taken again a little bit by um, some of that historical research. So Captain Cook was really, you know, well known as a you know. Int- I mean, he 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 sailed the oceans all over the world. Um, but he also was looking for the Northwest Passage and right. on his on his uh, um, second voyage. He was going up as far as he could, and um, but he also you know had he was a prolific writer. He was also very well known for the health of his crew because he was very much a a uh, a uh, captain who looked for local fresh ingredients. And so he was quite well known for uh, foraging. So there was there were there were fourteen different references to using spruce mm-hmm. in making beer on board his ships. Um, some and of them were not necessarily positive references. Um, he talked about using the bow the boughs, which you know, the branches of yeah. the spruce, and and his and he even said his mutinous crew, uh, you know. <laughs> does not appreciate the efforts of, of this spruce beer. But then he had another reference where he talked about using the young new sprouts of the spruce and how delicate and beautiful uh, the expressions uh, of the beer were, and his crew was very appreciative. Well, we come to find out, we looked at the, the spruce tips, as we call them, yeah. and we did a, a, a oil fractioning, and lo and behold, they have a very noble... Uh, set of humans and the like that uh, uh, are similar to the noble hops. And so, you know, miraculously, which maybe not miraculously, here's a fellow who's fairly, you know, organolectically inclined. He likes good flavors, and he's finding the spruce tips to be really good. His crew likes it. Well, there's a reason. It's familiar to them. So and, we're... and spruce tips have a really interesting character, and they are a little bit on the... They have a little bit of a fruity character, a little yeah. bit berry-like, uh, but they also have some sugars from you know the first flush of of sap coming into the tree's limbs, and so they add actually a non-fermentable sugar that that tends to you know again add a little bit more of the body of uh, to the beer. So we've used it in a number of beer styles from IPAs to uh, old ales. Um, and, and there's a local kind of character that we, we like to talk about, too. It's just, you know, here's something that's kind of really very interesting and unique. And we're recording this in mid-June, so we're, I guess, probably towards the tail end of uh, the spruce tip picking season, right? I, when, when, when do you normally Correct. go out and... No, you, no you're, you're absolutely right. You, there are places, you know, there's little microclimates all, all around here. You go up in the higher elevations, and, and you can still get the, the, the new growth growth of the spruce. Um, but, yeah, we have we have harvested already, um, but that's, you know, at, at sea level. But sure. you can still see them. I'm looking at them right now all, all around our, our place. Um, well, that's just break, a lost opportunity break. that you're just leaving on the trees right now, Jeff. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got lots of spruce up here. I'll tell you that. Um, so I, I, I didn't want to dwell too long on Amber and you talked about how you've made all of these other beers and I'm always curious to talk with brewers about beers that they were especially passionate about 
that just never caught on commercially. Um, no. And everybody has one uh, of, you know, I, you make a beer and you taste it and you, you do the research and, you know, uh, it, 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 it's a baby to you and you put it out into the world and everybody uh, who tastes it just kind of gives it a shrug and um, it's acts of humility, I guess, for, for, for a brewer. Um, was there a beer that you've put out in your, in your history that you were hopeful about and excited about and passionate about um, that you just sort of had to leave behind because the sales weren't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's 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 probably a, there's quite a few. I would say the one that probably really, uh, I think, hit all of us was um, we, we started out um, <laughs> 1989 with a <laughs> late, late, late hop edition of Centennial Hops in a, a product we called Autumn Ale. Um, and uh, he, it won a gold at the Great American Beer Festival in the, um, uh, let's see, at that time, it'd be probably IPA category, but um, it was just kind of at the, at the beginnings of the you know hop IPA uh, blossoming. Um, it then became, um, we called it Frontier, then we called it uh, ESB, and it ended up um, being the third most award-winning beer at the Great American Beer Festival. And but by 2000, 2010, me. we were, you know, it, it it the sales weren't weren't there for it to be uh, maintained in its as fresh a character as we would want uh, in the marketplace. So we had to let it go, even though it had won the third most medals at the time uh, of any beer in the GABF. But the thing is, is that medals aren't, aren't what, you know, drives sales and, and sales drives the freshness and the quality of the product on, on the shelf. Yeah. So for, our, for us to be able to, to, you know, make sure that our products were always what we wanted the consumer to experience, um, it ended up, becoming more infrequently brewed. We will brew it once in a great while. Um, but yeah, I would have to say uh, another one of our products that uh, ended up um, kind of being caught by the, the changing winds of time um, was really focused on a specific cop, Tetanang, okay. which lost so much acreage, and it was less and less acreage. And then it got to the point where it was like there was just one producer yeah and 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 we we couldn't even get the choices of of hop selections so that we were totally dependent upon you know that season that microclimate and there was a very variability there that we also couldn't couldn't feel good about when when it was producing the way that you wanted what was tetnanger doing for the beer that you Um, that you really loved there, there were times when it, 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 its uh, characteristic was really just very delicate and beautiful. It really, uh, you know, and, and our, at the time we just called it our, our pale, our pale ale. Um, it was, um, you know, at, oh, some nutty characters of, of Munich malt and pale, but it was a very simple malt backbone. Sure. And so the delicate nature of the hop uh, came through, and it was beautiful. But there were times when... The, just that hop character just did not get expressed because of that particular harvest. So another one we had to sit there and go, oh, God, let's <laughs> let it go. 
Um, when you're talking about the, you know, the changing landscape as well, um, you guys were obviously bottling early on, um, and then sort of came to the can game just a few years ago, right? And you've been upping uh, the, the 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 canned offerings. I mean, for for some breweries in '86, uh, and certainly even through the mid 1990s, I mean, cans were never really an option. Um, were you happy to embrace well, that format? Yeah. Well, let me let me even go back uh, further. All right. Um, we started um, bottling, and we did not keg. We did not keg right. for almost four years, three, four years, because our worry was that can, that keg can, would become crab buoys in the Bering Sea. We were fearing that we would buy these kegs and we wouldn't get them back because they'd be <laughs> they'd be converted into not that commercial... not that not that it wouldn't sell <laughs> at the accounts, but that people would just uh, you know take them and then just throw them out into the sea. Use them. Correct. Use them for use them for uh, crab buoys. <laughs> oh God! Did you but ever anyway, come across so yeah, well, somebody who did that after you started kegging? <laughs> um, actually, no. We okay. <laughs> but you know, well, we're naive. We didn't know. We feared, had lots of fears. Many fears that we had really never came to to, to forbearance. But um, then there were a lot of things that did come come to the fore, forefront that did. <laughs> what was an early, what was an early the, fear that you think you had that didn't come to fruition, and then what's one that took you by surprise? Um, hmm. Well, uh, one that we were naive about was borrowing money from a bank <laughs> that cost us two points over prime prime was 15 and a half percent so we we were borrowing money at interest rates that today people would be going say what yeah Yeah. but we were naive and we were young and that's what we were doing we were borrowing it for our inventory loans uh, so borrowing it from malt and then you know we paid paid down it was a, a credit line um so that was a that was a an interesting one um, because we we didn't know any better. That's that's the nature of the game. This is how you do it. And you know we we came through it, borrowing money at at interest rates that were anywhere from twelve to eighteen percent. Wow, pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then one that that bit us that was strange was um, Black Thursday, when the stock market took a tumble. And a lot of banks in Alaska were on the edge of bankruptcy because of uh, real estate uh, values going down. So we did not make deposits in our bank for a couple days, like Black Thursday. So that finally around Friday, it, there wasn't a run on the bank. So, okay, our bank is fine. So we ended up, uh, was it Black Tuesday? No, it was Black Tuesday. That's what it was. It was Black okay. Tuesday. Um and uh, so we didn't make deposits for a couple of days. And finally, we said, "Okay, time to do it." So we drove up at around 10, 10 o'clock at night to make our, our our deposit. And all the bank lights were on. And on this little drop slot was masking tape said "out of order." So we, we oh, how do you how do you have a little blank you know shoot <laughs> for your deposits be out of order? 
So we ran, went around the front, and there was a big posting that we read, and as we were reading it, a marshal came up with another man in black, looking austere, looking at us, and it was basically the FDIC had seized the bank. Wow. They closed our bank. Our bank went out of business. And I was like, huh. So what we did is we, and, and we were looking in there, and all the lights were on, and all the tellers were at their desks, and all the bank personnel were there working at 10.30 at night hmm. on Friday. And they all looked not very happy. No. And so we we left, went to a liquor store, bought two six-packs of beer. <laughs> Do you remember what beer? Was it back. yours? Yeah. I'll ask an Amber. <laughs> <laughs> Held up the two six-packs to show everyone behind the counters and put them down at the base of the door. Okay. And the marshal came, marshal came up and was like sternly saying no you know, just, you know, and kind of looking like, hey, you can't do this. And and we just shrugged our shoulders and said, you know, like, as if, what are you going to do? Come out here and handcuff us? And we turned around and left. And then we, <laughs> we drove around the block, and then we hid in an alley and watched. <laughs> and so the FDIC guy and the uh, marshal kind of, like, exchanged looks and then kind of opened the door, grabbed the two six-packs and brought it in. And come to find out, like, weeks and weeks later, that um, the tellers were saying, basically, they came in, and we were treated as criminals. We were responsible for, you know, the public's money, and the public's money was not safe in our hands. So we were fired that day, allowed to be hired for two weeks by the FDIC. But we were required to account for every paperclip in our, in our, in our desks. They searched all our purses our personal belongings. Wow. And uh, basically it was a dehumanizing experience. But but at that juncture, when they brought the two six-packs in, and at the end, they heard the story about, you know, how, how the bank had financed part of our uh, operation. Um, it became a, a, a much more human spot because then they said, oh, let's, let's have a beer. And so... Uh, so we're, that was the unexpected surprise. We're at a... Our bank failed. Yeah. <laughs> we're at a a weird point in America, and I think an important point in America right now, where a little bit of humanity and a little bit of understanding and, um, you know, greater appreciation for, you know, our, our fellow humans um, goes a long way. And... On other shows that I've done recently, you know, the whole conversation has been around you know, COVID and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And early on, I, I think when, when certainly in 86, th- there was almost a sense of, you know, if you were in a service industry and an owner of a service industry, um, you didn't wade into social matters too much you know people would come to your place and they could discuss those things but uh but the owners themselves were basically like switzerland you know because you wanted to 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 serve everybody and that that doesn't necessarily seem to be be the case these days i i'm curious as to how your brewery is navigating these waters right now where you know people want to know where you stand and people want to know um you know what you know who works for you um what 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 they believe um 
because this is this is new for a lot of brewery owners and you've obviously been through a lot and you've seen um you know a lot of change happen in the overall industry um have you ever seen or you know even come close to seeing what we're going through right now well um yeah you you know I was a fairly young son, and so, um, and I had, I had uh, an inspired moment to start interviewing my dad over the last, uh, you know, couple decades of his life, and uh, just, you know, I would get my remote camera, the remote mic, and then just have a conversation with him, and so I was able to stitch, stitch together a lot of his of his stories. My dad was a diplomat. I mean, he worked for the Foreign Service, mm-hmm. so we lived all over the world. And uh, but he was a farmer at heart, and he always talked about, "Hey, I'm just a farmer." Uh, and but you know, he depression, Dust Bowl. You know, he landed at Normandy on D-Day. Uh, Amazing. He landed at noon. First wave on D-Day was at 6 a.m. Second wave was at 9 a.m. He was <laughs> the third wave. Christ Almighty! You yeah. know what? Sorry, I I. Did not serve in Vietnam. I did not serve in Iraq or, you know, Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, so I look at the fact that <laughs> I've lived a very, 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 very uniquely sheltered life. Um, so when the COVID thing started hitting, you know, it was like, well, you know, there's times when you're called to service in different ways. You don't really necessarily have the opportunity to volunteer. You don't are not required to, but you know everyone was just reeling, and I'd have to say that, you know, how, how do you how do you personally react and respond? And there's a lot of unknowns and fear, and and uh, but you know for us it was pretty straightforward. Uh, we 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 started talking, <laughs> saying, okay, what, what do we have to do? Well, the most important thing for us was we wanted to, you know, to to be able to um, support our crew, so support our crew health-wise, support our crew financially in a way that that could give us time to sit there and navigate uh, what's coming down the pike. So, you know, we kind of formulated a plan. Um, you know, obviously, in the beverage business, we're part of the critical infrastructure, so you know, we had the opportunity to continue operating. We were mainly a production brewery. We did have the hospitality part of our business, but that wasn't our main focus. Right. But we did, you know, obviously shut down the uh, the uh, on-premise service side, but we were still producing. Um, and we segmented our brewery into different cells of, 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 of working groups, um, making sure that we had, you know, basically even before the term contact tracing started, we, you know, we, we, we had five different areas of our operation. Marcy and I are involved in search and rescue. So we were basically not allowed to be associated with different parts of our production facilities because we were more on the front line, exposed to a lot of different people, so we could be a vector of introduction. So we were allowed to be in the brewery. Um, but then all of a sudden we also realized, you know, we have supply chain opportunities here. You know, we have we have the capability of, of bringing in quaternary ammonium chloride for hard service sanitizing and so with 
our supply chain. We we brought in 55-gallon drums of hand sanitizer. We donated that to the city for their operations. We ended up uh, creating a, a, a two-week period where we gave uh, hand sanitizer to the consumers or to the public for free. Um, we worked with a local nonprofit to be able to finance that. And then, you know, we, we supplied, supplied, basically, we had a routine where people could come in, bring, bring, in, in, bring in their empty uh, hand sanitizer bottles or, or Windex bottles. We would give them a label to put on there. And it was, you know, a, a legit FDA-approved uh, hand sanitizer for use in food plants. Yeah. We described to them what it was. And here's, your, here's the label to affix to that non-labeled uh, container. We did that for two weeks, and then because we're within the search and rescue community, Marcy and I have a canine dog that mm-hmm. is basically trained for finding lost people. Yeah. So we got in touch with our, our incident commands uh, group, and uh, so all the first responders in this area were were put in line with us, so we were able to, again, send them you know one-gallon jugs of hand sanitizer in four-gallon uh, case lots so mm-hmm. we sent them to places like Yakutat, Sick, uh, um, Wrangell. Um, actually, I put Wrangell in, in, in tune with our, our suppliers, so they ordered direct. I worked with the, uh, the state procure- procurement division so that they could get a direct um, supply line with our supplier. It really wasn't a, a hand sanitizer shortage as much as just a, a logistical disruption. All the stores were wiped out because it was just, you know, fast response. People oh, sure. Bought a lot. So we just knew that we had to, you know, we, we could facilitate some of those changes. So, you know, we're, we're, we, we try to find a, a way to respond. Um, you know, and our, we immediately gave all of our staff two weeks paid leave before anything the government did. We said, okay, two weeks paid leave. You can use it how you want. You can... If, if you feel uncomfortable, stay home. If you feel sick, stay home. <laughs> no, certainly, uh, yeah. But 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 then, you know that was a big hit right off the bat. We just knew that this is, this was going to be a cost, and so we, well, let's just give everyone two weeks of breathing room, knowing that there's not going to be an interruption in their own financial world. Um, but then I started looking. You know, I worked with the procurement uh, offices, and so they gave they put out a, a request for information, and all of a sudden I say, oh. Viral transport media. Well, we can do that. Yeah. So we're right now we've we're 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 put, we've put in our uh, our CDC uh, protocols for the manufacturing. It we've made our first batch. We've sent it off for for sterility testing and for uh, viability testing. And uh, Jeff, let me just tell you, just, just just for folks who don't necessarily know what viral transport media is, um, can you give us just a little bit of background? Yeah, so if you go in to get a test, they'll take a swab, and then they put it in this tube with solution. And that solution then preserves that sample for it to survive time before it actually gets analyzed. Mm -hmm. So in the state of Alaska, um, you know, we have a lot of rural communities that aren't connected to any health care provider. So we're we're kind of reeling from realizing that if we have a small community that has an outbreak, it's going to get, it's going to get, 
there's going to be a SWAT team that goes out there to make sure we test everyone and get that uh, material back to yeah. see who who needs to be quarantined and who doesn't. Uh, and so there's going to be some really uh, amazing supply requirements. And so we just see, oh, well, we make media all the time. We make one to five liters a week, and <laughs> we're talking three mils per, per two. <laughs> this is a no-brainer. Yeah. We can make 1,500 tubes a week without even sweating. So. <laughs> It, it, Everyone can sit there and make a difference, and it's just you have to figure out what 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 your what's in your wheelhouse and how how can you help. And that's regardless of size, I imagine, right? I mean, I, it sort of goes to the ethos of what craft purports itself to be, um, and a lot of folks have been able to, you know, walk the walk as opposed to just you know talking the talk in the in in in, in the last couple of months. And I also, you know, I, you know, I think also, um, I, I think I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm influenced uh, by where I am. I live in Alaska, and so, um, you know, I catch crab, I share it, I give it to my neighbors. I catch a lot of crab, Dungeness crab. Okay. And I catch more than I eat, so I, I share it with my neighbors. Um, I think of uh, the fact that uh, I live in a unique, unique place. Social distancing. <laughs> That's why many of us like to live up here. Yeah. <laughs> but but more than that, I think we also are 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 are, are acutely aware that um, there are times when we need help from our neighbors, and so reaching out is is kind of commonplace. And I'd I have to say that to your point about this time and humanity, I think I think everyone is starting to feel that way, regardless of where they are. We don't have a, a Alaska's residents don't have a lock on that. Um, everyone really are, are 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 parts of communities, and breweries are parts of communities. So I think there's a predisposition in our in our industry to think about the uh, the older gentleman that always came by on on Friday night for a beer. To maybe even think about reaching out to that old older gentleman and say, "Hey, how are you doing? We have curbside. Yeah, do you want your beer?" You know, I, I I really believe that is maybe a legacy of of this of this period. We're going to be more appreciative of of those intimate contacts and intimacies that we right now are being asked to kind of distance ourselves from. Before I let you go, I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't talk to you about the importance of smoke beer and uh listeners of this show i think are are fans of of all things uh smoked beer and you were a pretty early adopter i think again going back to you know, the historical records right that 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 you were reading and 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 coming along with but um but in those early days of 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 the brewery i mean you were putting out smoked porter which is still sort of hard to come by, um, by and large. Do Americans not appreciate smoked beer as much as they should? <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 really interesting to think about um, smoke characters. And um, by the way, do you, so, do you like that I just totally switched from like like social issues to smoked beer with you without any warning whatsoever and a really poor transition? Oh no! I don't. Transition was fine. 
I think the transition's fine. I'll 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 whip one whip one on you. Yes, sir. <laughs> when uh, when uh, um, when we were asked by the Brewers Association to write uh, a book uh, in regards to uh, smoked beers. Yeah, with Ray uh, Daniels. Yeah. Yeah, with Ray Daniels. It was really uh, it was a really fun uh, experience. But I tracked. I called uh, the Library of Congress and asked for a, re- a research librarian. So I talked to him. And uh, he, uh, I, I went to University of Maryland, so I would go to the Library of Congress to study. I would find old texts having to do with chemical engineering, and, and I, I'd be studying them just for different, you know, uh, uh, example problems to get immersed in in subjects matter. So I just Library of Congress was my my go-to library. And so I asked the librarian, I said, I'm, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be writing about um, beers with smoke character. Could you guide me as to how?" I would do this remotely with the Library of Congress. And, and the response was, well, we're not the best resource for that type of information. And I'm like, what? You have a copy of every <laughs> book in the, in the world. Congress, yeah. <laughs> they said, no, we do not have a copy of every book in the world. We have a lot of books, but we don't have a copy of every book. There are specific collections which I could recommend to you. Let me get back to you. Two days later, he calls back and says, um, I recommend that you look for these three collections of books. Well, the one that I was able to find a, th- a thread of information on where, where it was was a collection called the Hurdy Tech Collection. Okay. And it was a guy who collected books uh, in, let me think, this would have been 1890. Okay. He made soft drinks. He made soft drinks in 1890. And he decided to collect every book written in English having to do with beverages. Wow. That's kind of so cool. He, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So it, I, it really is, place, yeah. Yeah, place to place to place. And, oh, yeah, no, we sold that collection. Oh, no, we sold that collection. Oh, we sold that collection. And the final buyer was University of California at Davis campus. I called him up. They said, you are the first person who has ever asked about that collection. I said, well, can I come visit? I said, yes. So I got there, and I spent three days immersing myself in, in books written all the way from the 15, 1600s to, you know, 1890. And it was amazing. I'll and bet. Disappointingly, I found that um, I didn't find a lot of positive references towards smoke and beer. Really? Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is, how am I going to, how, how can I spin this one? And, and the research librarian after, on day two came up to me and said, hey, you know, let me just talk to you about your research. What do you, you know, and I said, oh, this is what I'm doing. He says, well, you've been really diligent and I'm really very appreciative of, of, you, of your, you know, absolute kind of studious way of, 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 of handling the books, but also reading the books and then also copying. And, but you, do you do this a lot, research? And I said, no. Okay, word of advice. You have to think about when these books were written. You're looking at books published in 1700s. Well, who wrote those books? I said, well, obviously you know, somebody who's capable of writing. Who brewed beer back in the 1700s? I said, well, uh, don't you think it probably was women that brewed the beer? 
And women back then were not educated. They were not told yeah. how to write and read. So here you have a man who isn't brewing, who's writing about brewing. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. You're reading through a very strange filter, and you're trying to gain information. You have to place yourself in that time. So I'm going, okay. It started to really kind of dawn on me. Why would, would anybody reference smoky flavors in food when they're cooking over an open fire when every cottage is heated by wood or coal the whole town smells of smoke why would you even reference smoke unless it was above and beyond normal levels Mm -hmm. all beers had smoke character because all beer was using roasted malt all manner of, of, of foods were smoking. The only time you'd say, and that's what the references were, it, it smacked too much of smoke. Maybe not even saying too much, it smacked of smoke. They talked about the various types of, uh, of woods. So anyway, I go back to uh, wanting to just tell you I can get off topic real quick. Yeah, boy, and boy, did you, like but you, like, but that was fun, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but like. When you first created a smoked beer and you put it out there and you were drawing off of historical texts and right. uh, historical recipes, I mean, they're divisive today. I can't imagine what it was, you know, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was, it was absolutely crazy. It was crazy. But, but you know, uh, porters back there, back, back in that period of time, were very prevalent in Alaska during the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it was a little bit of a delayed response. That, that transition occurred really earlier in the 1800s on the East Coast, um, where you know the Pilsner started to take over. But the darker roasted beers were very, very prevalent, and we knew that that brewer had to be a little bit inventive. He probably ended up getting and and did some own of his own roasting. So the only hardwood around here was alder. So that's kind of that 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 character. We also had a commercial smokehouse across the street from us, so we were able to roast our own grains. Who were all yeah. so that was kind of the genesis. We 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 would enjoy smoked fish on Fridays with our neighbor, and we'd have beer. And then we said, you know, it'd be kind of kind of cool to have a smoked beer, which historically had some relevance to our locale. So we said, okay, let's just do this. So therein kind of lied, you know, lied, laid the uh, the the, the uh, the logic to, to creating it and it was fun and we had a blast and it's still what's amazing though is again we said beer is best when fresh and so even though we would be tasting older and older beers we soon discovered that smoke porter was different and that it had the capability of aging even yeah. at the low alcohol strength of six percent it still aged well and really i would say that was kind of another little bit of a surprise discovery and a fun kind of um, thing. I ended up uh, talking to a group to, to have a tasting of some of the aged smoke porters, and it was Michael Jackson, Fred Eckhart, Charlie Papazian, Ed LaPero, oh, Greg Noonan. Boy, that's um, just a, that's a Mount Rushmore right there. Right, right, yeah. And, and, and we sat down, and I had them taste older smoke porters, and, and that's when uh, Michael Jackson said, you know, one thing you should think about doing is Letting, the, letting some of the yeast stay, because we were still kind of filtering all our beers. <laughs> and so so from 1993 on, we uh, stopped filtering 
the smoke border and we left a little bit of just a tiny little bit of yeast in it just to let it be a kind of a more of a, a living living thing um and uh yeah um but it's been an amazing journey i tell you what i have i've there's no question as far as this is a tough time for many people we're all navigating it um and we're part of our community uh indelibly so um and i think uh um We'll pull out of this after the Spanish flu in the, you know, 1916, 1918. Yeah. Uh, what came, came after was the Roaring 20s. Last question, just before I let you go. Um, when you first started, I mean, there weren't a lot of shoulders to stand on. Uh, you know, number 67 in the, in the modern brewery age, we're over 8,000 now. Um, you know, there's people standing on your shoulders and standing on their shoulders and, um, the industry has grown so much. Um, if the last financial crisis of 2008 taught us anything is that we're headed into, um, a period of regrowth a couple years down the line. And there's going to be people who are home brewers who are passionate about beer, who might hang their own shingle and start and start their own brewery, much like you and Marcy did back uh, uh, in, in, in the early days. What do you offer them as a piece of advice to the next generation, the coming generation of brewers from somebody who's been in this for gosh, almost 40 years now? Well, I would say um, every brewer, commercial brewer, is a representative of the greater industry, the greater community of beer. And I will give the same advice that was given to me when I was investigating. I went up to a small brewery in Utica, New York, FX Mac. (laughs) Uh, The third was there, and he gave me a tour. And he basically said, you represent, if you make beer commercially, you represent all beer producers. Make the best beer you can. And unbeknownst to me, he wrote uh, Fritz Maytag in San Francisco. So I went in route to Alaska as I, was, as I was moving to Alaska. I ended up getting my Greyhound bus, take it through San Francisco, and took a tour of the brewery in San Francisco. Carpenter, I think, gave the tour. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and Fritz Maytag um, searched me out, and he said, "Hey, I got a, I got a letter from uh, FX Matt. Said if you ever came through, you know, touch base." So I sat there and, and spent a couple hours talking to Fritz Maytag, and just think, New York, California, the community of brewers back then was small. You know? Yeah, and I just remember. You know, just being impacted by that. And uh, Marcy and I came from uh, kind of more or less teetotaling families. Okay. They weren't necessarily enthusiastic about us, you know, getting in the beer biz. But those two really kind of instilled a sense of of nobleness to this industry that was very, very heartening. But their insistence, insistence on making quality beer and its reflection on the greater community of beer and its place in society was really impactful. And it was the day before Thanksgiving because I remember uh, Fritz Maytag had to pick up a, a turkey from his local grocer that he was going to cook the next day. <laughs> of course he did. And then yeah. he dropped off another turkey at the Greyhound Station bus so I could go, go north to 
to Seattle to catch the ferry to Alaska. <laughs> well, a quick look at the uh, at the Brewers Association numbers uh, right now from 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 the last year. You're number 22 as far as craft brewery goes, and FX Matt is number 16. They've been around for a lot longer. You're catching up on them pretty quick, so. Uh, <laughs> You obviously learned a lot during those conversations. Um, Jeff, I wish I could do this every week. I know you probably don't feel the same way, but it's always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, John, I appreciate the uh, outreach, and, uh, and thank you for what you do. That's Jeff Larson of Alaskan Brewing Company. And earlier on in the conversation, Marcy Larson of Alaskan Brewing Company. There's so much beer history that exists that has happened during our lifetimes that we might not be aware of. And conversations like this are a reminder to me that we need to talk with the early pioneers and the early craft adopters to make sure that these stories get out into the world. And, of course, we need to support the makers of smoked beers. What's important to you in beer and what's being overlooked? What history should be explored? Let me know by reaching out via email. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at BeerEdge.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And if you haven't yet, please go to your podcast platform of choice and leave a review of the show. It's such an odd ask, but honestly, it's how things work today. And your support, uh, it matters a lot and it goes a long way. And please check out BeerEdge.com for beer news and insight and subscribe to our newsletter. And also make sure to listen to the Beer Edge podcast. Nate Schweber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. And once again, check out Andy Crouch, noted beer villain, on the Beer Edge podcast with new episodes every week. There's also Steal This Beer every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast on the 15th of every month. I'm happy to host both of those shows or co-host both of those shows. And... Uh, we have all of your beer needs covered between all of these various podcast platforms. Why go anywhere else? New episodes of this show are released every Wednesday. And if you're new, I hope you'll subscribe and you'll come back to the weekly conversation. And if you like what you hear, again, please consider leaving a review. In the meantime, I'm John Hall, and I'll be back next week to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>